I like the Facebook episodes because we get complaints. I mean. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Darren Lind, Andrew Prokop from Vox. Uh, today is day 105 of the Biden administration. Um, Unless you're not listening to this the day we recorded it, in which case oh, it's- Oh, yeah. yeah. Might be 106, 107. Yeah. Uh, but late last week, we got to have our, our first 100 days uh, takes. Andrew did, I think, a, a good one. Uh, it was basically a, a myth-busting piece. So, like, let us know. Why, why, why is this fake? It's such a round number. I mean, I've got 10 fingers. And then if you <laughs> do 10 sets of 10, that's 100. It's clearly yeah, important. It seems logical. Joe Biden that didn't give you eight more arms, Matt. So <laughs> That was part of FDRs. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, FDR just did a lot in 100 days. And then he just served three more terms doing nothing, right? So... My piece was the myth of the first hundred days. And, um, you know, this ground has been trotted before. Um, whatever people get a little too excited about a, a new president coming in and, and what the hundred day period means and, and how important it is. Uh, but the argument I made was a little more based on changes in the modern presidency that have happened, um, especially in recent decades. So, you know, the the folk narrative of the first 100 days and and how important it can be is basically that FDR came in in 1933. He passed a suite of sweeping new bills to transform America and that the reason supposedly that he could do this was that he came in very popular. And uh, as we know, uh, president's popularity uh, often tends to drop or stagnate um, uh, as they stay in office longer. And the theory here is that it gets harder to do big things as your term in office goes on. So the first 100 days is crucial. Like this is your best opportunity to make big change. And I don't really think that is true. And that's for a few reasons. One is that, first of all, this idea of the presidential honeymoon, it's based on a fair amount of history and and some some good historical examples of how, especially in in mid century, when we start to get good polling data and um, you know the sixties, seventies, new presidents tended to come in and they would be very popular when they started off. But that's become rarer and rarer as polarization has increased. Obama was actually the only one of the past uh, several presidents to get like a serious honeymoon in his approval rating of, of the type that we used to see. Uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden, uh, they came in with either meh or uh, good-ish approval ratings. Biden is at around 54% approval right now. But also, Biden's disapproval is is higher than any recent new president at this stage, except for Trump. So basically, the idea of the honeymoon doesn't seem to hold true as much anymore. This idea that there's a very limited window for a president to do big things because he is so popular. And then I go on to argue also that the nature of how the modern president does big things, either by passing big legislation or by using the power of the executive branch, when you look at uh, when those large accomplishments in recent decades tend to occur, they are almost always not in the first 100 days. When it comes to legislation, it simply usually takes longer to do big bills. The kind of thing you can do in the first 100 days is pass a big economic stimulus bill like an emergency measure like Biden did and like Obama did before him. But uh, more transformative stuff tends to take longer. And then with the executive branch, often what the president does early on is kind of low-hanging fruit. And uh, as he stays in office longer, he tends to explore the limits of his executive power and push the envelope a bit more. So his legacy is often shaped by decisions that happen later on in the term. You know, I, I think the point about the, the honeymoons and stuff is really, really important. And, and one thing I would say about that is that I, I think it's taken some time for the trends to become clear. Because, like, if you look at Bill Clinton's approval rating, right, one way of looking at it, which I think is how it was seen at the time, if you were anticipating presidents to have honeymoons, 
Republicans. Well, his early approval rating was much higher than his share of the vote, right? Because he only got 42% in 1992, but he had this slightly above water approval rating. So it kind of seems like a honeymoon, right? You like sneak into the presidency with like seemingly a very weak vote count, but like actually most people uh, approved of him and, and the job he was doing. Then you pull back, you contextualize Clinton's approval ratings with Bush, with Trump, with Biden. And what you see is, no, okay, this is a new era of highly polarized politics in which presidents tend to have low ceilings. It takes a traumatic national event like 9-11 to like bump you out of that kind of landscape. It only seems to be getting more and more polarized over time. Uh, we don't really know what to make of Ross Perot. We just kind of like stick an asterisk on that and, and put it in the in, in the back shelf. But, you know, it creates a situation in which you never have that moment of super popularity and in which it's totally inconceivable that you would get, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan is very uh, influential president in the lifetime of many people who are alive today, though not necessarily on this podcast. Um, I'm pretty sure he- that both Andrew and I were born during the Reagan administration, <laughs> technically speaking. Technically, right. Something happened with Reagan that, like, it's hard to even describe today. He won an election, but Democrats had a majority in the House and very consequential right-wing legislation passed, right? Because politics was less polarized. There were more conservative Democrats, but also there was just, like, a feeling that you couldn't just, like, not do stuff after the president had won. And that itself created a, a th- I mean, it's all a nebulous question of like norms and what will fly politically and blah, 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 blah. It's emerged over time that like people don't need to do politics that way, that like you can just just say no to things. And it becomes much more a question of actual vote counts, right? Which is like Biden passed this big rescue plan, not because he had such an overwhelming mandate, but because he had the votes for it. And that, I think, reduces the significance of timing. Like, I'm skeptical that a giant infrastructure bill will pass, but whether it passes or not just hinges on, like, what do the members of Congress want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it might even be said that the kind of 100 days honeymoon thing relied on two different you know, groups of people, right? Like the general public for one kind of offering high approval ratings, indicating a certain willingness to like unify and move on, whatever, but also political elites of the opposing party choosing to, you know, either defer to high polls or to otherwise kind of give a new president a break and see which way the winds were blowing before deciding that they were going to oppose, like, you know, everything. And I think that arguably the recent turn of, no, if, you know, we got a certain percentage of the vote in the last presidential election, clearly a certain number of Americans agree with our vision of the country. We don't have to roll over and agree with your vision of the country just because you happen to be in the chief executive is a more accurate read of where public opinion will settle by the time the next election rolls around, right? Like there's a certain amount of, you know, maybe brinksmanship, but maybe just kind of accurate assessment that's happened over the last decade with like, I'm thinking in particular of the 2013 government shutdown, where there was a certain assumption that that was going to rebound badly on Republicans in short term opinion polling. But Republicans on the whole were making the bet that over a year from then, when the next election happened, it wouldn't be as salient in voters' minds. And they were correct. And I think that there's a a decent analogy to be made to the first hundred days thing where like you can be more oppositional than the public as a whole is during the first hundred days. But if you successfully anticipate where they're going to be by the time the midterm elections come up, you're putting yourself in better position for those midterm elections than you would be if you were just following the polls on a week to week basis and only turning against the president and his party when the polls soured on them. And this was the advance uh, really um, put into practice by Mitch McConnell and John Boehner in 2009 when Barack Obama came in, because, you know, Obama did have quite high uh, mid-60s approval rating and the country was viewed as being in crisis. Uh, There were magazine stories running about whether the Republican Party was extinct. Democrats uh, had 59 Senate seats or 
or 58, depending on who was seated when. And then uh, Arlen Specter was going to switch parties in a couple months. It, it was viewed as kind of a uh, bold and, and risky decision at the time for uh, Boehner's Republicans to vote entirely against Obama's stimulus plan. And then for uh, almost every Senate Republican to do the same, though we did see Susan Collins, Olympia Snow and Arlen Specter provided it the votes necessary to pass. So it wasn't actually, you know, the total partisan blockade. But that set the tone for the start of the Obama presidency. And um, and I think it was that exact calculation. And it was a risk at the time because um, it just wasn't clear that things were going to follow that trajectory, but uh, it, it proved to be a uh, a smart calculation. Obama's approval rating did start to drop as uh, as the year went on. Uh, it was it was down to at least the 50s, if not the high 40s by the end of the year and, and 2010. Uh, Obamacare, of course, came into play and um, proved to be very controversial. And then by the time the 2010 midterms came around, it was a stunning success for Republicans. So you know, that shows how it can work. I think um, another thing that has changed, uh, as as kind of as Matt alluded to, is that there used to be in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party controlled Congress or controlled at least the House for uh, for many decades from the mid uh, from the middle of the century until the 1994 midterms in the Clinton administration. And they controlled the Senate for most of that time as well, though they lost it for a few years in the Reagan administration. And there were these two kind of wings of the Democratic Party at the time. Um, uh, there was a conservative wing of the party that depending on if a Republican president was starting out or a Democratic president was starting out, they could kind of go either way and support either party's uh, either presidential candidate or or new president's agenda, uh, if because like you know if you're a conservative Democrat and Reagan wants to cut taxes, you can say, oh, I I agree with that. Or if Bill Clinton's coming in and he wants to pass his economic plan, raising taxes on the wealthy, and you're a conservative Democrat, they can say, oh, I agree with that, as they did in 1993. But with the greater sorting and ideological polarization of the party's congressional blocks um, and the swing uh, between whether Republicans or Democrats control Congress, things are much more dependent on who is actually in control at the time and how many seats does that party have. And, you know, if Joe Biden had one fewer Senate seat, if Democrats had one fewer Senate seat right now, it seems pretty obvious that we would not have gotten anything like the uh, American Rescue Plan that passed, it would have had to have been greatly changed if anything would have been able to pass at all. Andrew alluded to uh, the, the the Obama year situation, right? And the sense that Boehner's like bold strategy paid off and it worked. One thing I always think about politics, right, is that all the actors, like those of us in the media, the members of Congress themselves, the consultants, everybody is acting on very imperfect information. Right. An interesting thing that I remembered from Obama's memoir is that he refers to the the officer acted stupidly incident with Skip Gates, not in the spirit of like, hey, do you remember that crazy controversy? But he says that in their internal White House polling, that was the single biggest drop in his approval rating that he ever registered. Uh, so I went back and I looked at the public polling and the public polling is not like precise enough to verify that, but it's at least consistent with that analysis, right? So there's a universe in which like actually this like slightly dumb controversy like really really badly hurt obama's approval ratings that it wrecked his image as the post-racial savior who americans from across party lines should celebrate that his elevation to the white house had proved that we were beyond racism or something that that's why republican strategy worked out now i don't, I don't think i'm like quite ready to go like full revisionist um on, on this kind of theory of of boehner and his stuff but i'll put it this way i don't think it's out of the question that the current Republican strategy of like voting no on popular things like won't come back to 
bite them in the ass. It's not 100% clear to me that that's the right lesson of Obama-era stuff. There's also just the fact that the underlying economic situation is very different, right? Like, if you want to make the case for Obama's stimulus, you have to do a lot of, like, in the counterfactual, things would have been even worse, right? It seems really clear that, like, the economy is going to be doing well next year, and it's going to be Republicans who are left to argue. This was in uh, Tim Scott's rebuttal. He was like, oh, the economy would have been great even if he hadn't done this stuff, which, you know, that, that might be true. I don't think that's like a totally insane point of view to have on the situation. But you're always in the weak argument when you're the one like left stammering about counterfactuals and the other guy could be like, hey, look, things are going really well. Uh, you got all this money. People got vaccinated. Like everything is uh, is going amazing. That said, you know, I, I wonder in legacy terms, right? Because it's like right now... Um, the vaccine and the economic situation, like, is very salient to me in my personal life. I, I like to get vaccinated. I like to see businesses opening in my neighborhood. But this is not like legacy defining stuff. Right. Like at all, uh, because the pandemic will end even in countries that, that do much worse than we did. Right. And the question I think hanging over the Biden team is like, are they accomplishing anything of lasting significance rather than just sort of putting out a short term fire? I mean, I think that that's I mean, yes, that is definitely an open question, but it the extent to which it is relevant to the first hundred days question is itself like, I mean, Obviously, all of these are social constructs and like norms, you know, at, at most institutions based in, you know, their own sets of house rules and more often based in kind of traditional norms of how the game is played in Washington. But like the extent to which a meaningful accomplishment isn't something you have to do by the two year mark, but rather something you have to do by the hundred day mark itself relies on how other political players, including opposition politicians and media, characterize, you know, it like it depends on how much we see the first hundred days as like the window of maximum opportunity and how we view what they actually accomplish in that window. And I think that internal party politics are ahead of the curve on this. Like at this point, not only the Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party have adopted not just kind of when a new president comes into office, but but when they're vetting candidates for the presidency in primaries, the attitude of, you know, that everyone has learned the lesson of Mitch McConnell in 2009 very well. And there's a certain assumption going in from a lot of each party's base. You shouldn't be trying to build your agenda on bipartisanship because you won't have a honeymoon period no matter how strongly you win the presidency. That has been internalized as a lesson. So you know, even in a world where you did have kind of a stronger honeymoon period in public opinion polling, it doesn't seem like you would necessarily have that kind of halo effect over a first hundred days in the future. But we still treat the first hundred days as a meaningful construct or some kind of window to like look back at how at what has been accomplished and to a certain extent as, you know, a sign of how much can be accomplished in a president's first term or certainly in the first two years of his presidency, which is probably going to be the more empowered side of it because presidents' parties generally lose in the midterms. Parties are functioning in a way that makes the hundred that reinforces Andrew's analysis and makes it less likely that this hundred days window will be different from the rest of the presidency in future. But the fact that it's still discussed at all as a meaningful construct, it, it obscures things a little bit and it holds presidents to this idea and forces them to maybe come up with things that look like first hundred days accomplishments uh, just to kind of tick off that box that might not be in service of the overall what do you want to have coming to the American people when you make the case that they should reelect you four years from now? Well, let, let's go back to FDR to to get back a little more to the question of where this 100 days construct came from. And first of all, it was not created in advance. It was a retrospective thing. Once the 100 days had passed, FDR said, hey, look at all the stuff I did over my first 100 days. But it wasn't like he had proactively set out this deadline. What he did do was uh, call for Congress to have a special session to consider legislation. And there, in that period, there, there were several things going on. There was... Um, 
he had to rescue the banks during that time. But the actual legislation that ended up being considered in this period was far broader. And it should be noted that uh, FDR himself was not uh, responsible for all of this legislation. In fact, uh, he opposed some of it. A lot of people think the most significant legacy matter that happened uh, in FDR's first 100 days um, was um, creating FDIC deposit insurance for banks. And he had opposed that. Uh, this was something congressional Democrats wanted and he had to kind of give in to. But yeah, he, he had, uh, in the end, a, a suite of uh, legislation passed. Uh, Tennessee Valley Authority was created, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act, a, a lot of the stuff we think of as um, core to the New Deal. But when it came to Social Security, which is probably the FDR legacy that affects by far the most people today, that didn't pass until uh, 1935. That was after the first midterms when Democrats did well, they were emboldened to uh, act again. So anyway, it, there is some truth to the idea that like there was a crisis happening and then in the first 100 days under FDR, Congress acted quickly and they did a lot of stuff. And that has basically never happened again. The Great Society, uh, nothing of that really falls in the first 100 days, which are kind of difficult to calculate because JFK was assassinated and then, you know, LBJ comes in and how do you count the 100 days there? However you count it, the um, the Voting Rights Act of 1964 falls outside that window. If you start it by his first elected term, most of the major 1965 legislation falls outside that window. And then you keep going. You can look at uh, Reagan's tax cuts. You can look at Bill Clinton's economic plan. You can look at George W. Bush's tax cuts, Obamacare, Trump's tax cuts. They're they're all well outside the 100 days window. And that's what makes me really think that this window is not very relevant when it comes to, you know, looking at this uh, report card. Oh, how much has the president done so far legislatively? The big stuff tends to happen later. Congress tends to take its time with it. And, you know, the as far as whether Biden will actually be able to do anything big and and, and legacy uh, cementing, the Congress that I and the new presidency that I think about the most for this current president is not um, Barack Obama, but it's George W. Bush in 2001. And it's it can be hard to remember the pre 9-11 George W. Bush presidency, but there are a lot of similarities to the current situation. He had a 50-50 Senate with uh, Republicans in the majority with a tie-breaking vote. He had a very bitter, close, disputed election with many of the supporters of the loser believing that the loser was robbed and that George W. Bush was an illegitimate president. And you can see it in his approval ratings at first. They're, they're not good. Uh, and so he started off as this kind of um, weak figure he wanted to get the tax cuts, which he did through budget reconciliation. He didn't get that in the first 100 days, but it happened in May, the following month. But basically, the way he did that and his administration handled that was so alienating to one of their key moderate Republican senators, Jim Jeffords, that he switched parties and threw control of the Senate to Democrats. So that may well have been the end of the partisan Republican legislative agenda under George W. Bush if 9-11 hadn't changed everything and scrambled politics and his approval rating up to 90 percent and then the 21st century followed. <laughs> I, I think something that that brings to mind in general is the like critical importance of future events to how we look at past events, right? That, you know, Andrew pointed out that like social security doesn't happen until 1935, right? And and it's not just social security. The Wagner Act is 1935 um, and the Works Progress Administration is 1935, right? That what happens is, is that FDR does in fact do a lot of stuff in his first 100 days, but it's not just that he does stuff, but that the stuff he does is so popular and successful that in 1934, Democrats make large gains in the midterms, right? Which basically never happens. And then that is such a like destabilizing political event. It's it, like, it's, it's such an unknown outlier, right? That Democrats pass all this other stuff 
And that not only makes FDR a more significant president, but it makes his first 100 days seem super duper successful because success begets success, right? And if you look at the beginning of Biden's term, look at the beginning of any new president's term, what the activists are always saying is like, this is great. The American people want us to deliver on our promises. We'll be rewarded for doing lots of things. And the uh, evidentiary base for that is really... um poor. I would say it's overwhelmingly, in fact, contradicted by, by the evidence. But like FDR was, in fact, rewarded for his frenetic pace of activity. And that's what makes it such a big deal, right? And similarly, like Ronald Reagan is a big deal politically, I think, not just because of anything that he did in his first 100 days or even his first term, but his re-election was so overwhelming. George H.W. Bush won in 1988. It's very rare to get three wins in a row. Uh, because George H.W. Bush came in, Clarence Thomas ends up on the Supreme Court. You get a big judicial realignment. Also, Republican Party gains state legislative seats during the Reagan-Bush era, which is super duper duper rare. So it's like there was a realigning Republican moment during the 1980s. And that then casts like a halo around everything that Reagan does. I mean, Obama, again, right, like if Hillary Clinton had done a little bit better, you can do a million what ifs about like James Comey and that letter, right? But like Obama's presidency would look so much more solid and so much more consequential if Clinton had won, if the Supreme Court had wound up with a progressive majority because Scalia's seat was filled by Merrick Garland, right? We would say, okay, you know, like he had some ups and downs and some rocky moments, but like at the end of the day, Republicans they freaked out. They nominated Donald Trump like he was defeated. Life is just full of these incredibly contingent events, right? Like, I, I don't think there will be a 9-11-esque uh, moment that shakes up American public opinion. But as Andrew was saying, it's like, there would be no way to know. I was I was uh, interning for a, for a senator in the summer of 2001. And Democrats really felt then, like, we, we felt like Bush was on the run. His feeble presidency was collapsing as of August 2001. Um, and then things things took a turn. We should probably take a break, but I do want to get back to the FDR example because that the context in which FDR has come up lately is different, but makes me wonder if we're really talking about the same thing. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So in the days after uh, President Biden's joint address to Congress last week, there was a certain amount of chatter back and forth about the vision he had articulated and the progressiveness of that vision, coupled with the the boldness of both the American Jobs Plan and the new packages being introduced, uh, and a certain amount of punditical back and forth about whether he was an heir to FDR or a new FDR or whether that was an overstatement. And I do wonder, given the centrality of like the proposals that Biden, not just Biden's rhetoric and the way he talked about the role of government in that speech, but like the substance of the proposals that he had made and had indicated willingness to support, if there is a certain amount of first hundred days nostalgia that's backing that idea of Biden as a new FDR, that people are looking at the substance of what was accomplished, certainly comparing it to the Obama stimulus package and saying people on Team Blue broadly construed are looking at this and going, we didn't have to give up as much as we thought we would. You know, we have a president who's actually a champion for our side of things. We could actually 
have as transformative a presidency, just extrapolating things out from where we are now. And given what we've been talking about in the first segment, it seems like yoking any president's legacy to FDR is is just setting yourself up for disappointment in a certain way. Right. But I wonder if that's part of what's been motivating this weirdly strongly felt on both sides uh, intra-democratic debate about whether it's fair to say that Biden is an heir to that legacy. Yeah, I mean, I think in the discourse, what is just kind of being said is that uh, liberals think FDR was good and he did a lot of good things and that maybe Biden will also be good and do a lot of good things. And of course, this is based on, um, you know, FDR, many people don't remember, he, as part of his first hundred days, he actually included a pivot to deficit reduction and he wanted to cut veterans pay and um, all sorts of uh, uh, this falls out of the narrative of like, you know, the bold, uh, boldly liberal FDR. But he was very concerned about politics and and he would often try to turn right after going left and um, try to make sure he's not he wasn't too far uh, away from public opinion. But you know, the way that Democratic Party and and liberal activists remember FDR is just as, you know, the bold, transformative New Deal president. And they're saying, hey, maybe Biden can um, can be similar. Look at all these big plans that he's proposing. They would be a big deal if they actually passed. And then we come to the question of whether they can actually pass. And FDR had large uh, congressional majorities in both houses. Uh, Biden has extremely narrow congressional majorities in both houses. And uh, I hate to bring it back to last week again, but as all things do in the current Congress, everything just ultimately turns on what the moderate Senate Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in key positions actually want to do. Are they on board with a transformative like FDR-like agenda, like Biden's American family plan, like the infrastructure plan. And uh, we're going to have to see. I mean, the other question here is, is it really fair in the 21st century to be looking to to be looking to legislative accomplishments, much less legislative proposals as the place where a president's legacy will be made, right? Like, I think that there's, because Democrat, we actually have unified government, however narrow it is for the first time it, since you know, well, I guess for the first time in four years, in retrospect, the 2017 to 2018 Congress, well, in retrospect, and at the time, the 2017-2018 Congress was notable for uh, how little party discipline it had in certain respects, if you remember the, the multiple failed attempts to pass, you know, legislative Obamacare repeal. But, you know, I think that there's been a certain amount of regression to the norm among what people's expectations are of a president. Whereas if you talked to folks, you know, who were involved in politics during the campaign and during the transition, a lot of emphasis on both sides was on like what could be done via the executive branch. Uh, and, you know, the, the importance of appointments, the importance of judicial nominations, the importance of, you know, executive orders and regulation of prosecutorial priorities at the DOJ, you know, all these sorts of things that really there's both a wider horizon of possibility than there was 75 years ago. And in the absence of likely congressional unified government for the last two to six years of a president's term, that's where most of the possibility space is going to be after the first midterms. And so is it really, you know, to what extent does it make sense to think about a president's legacy, even at this early date, as being about legislative accomplishments. Well, and this is also an area where the 100 days concept is at its most obsolete, right? Because FDR was not inaugurated until March. So he had much more time to do the uh, like administrative work of, you know, who do I want to appoint before anybody had to actually do anything. Uh, but also the Administrative Procedures Act did not exist in FDR's time. And a lot of um, modern judicial doctrines about non-delegation also didn't exist. And this is a specific response to FDR, right? Like mo- movements were made after that to make it um, – the, the president still has a lot of discretionary authority, but it's like literally more burdensome to wield it than it used to be. Um, and it will take time, I think, for the consequences of Biden's team being in place to to unfold. 
world, right? Just in the sort of, you know, like the Biden EPA, as far as I know, has not done anything yet. Um, but I, I think that it will be consequential, right? It's just that like Trump rushed some rules out the door and they wound up not holding up in court. They're like trying to lawyer things correctly. Janet Yellen is working on, I think, a potentially very consequential uh, international tax evasion sort of crackdown, but she has to have meetings with a lot of foreign leaders before that can happen. So it's like things are in the are in the works. Um, some of which, you know, what you get a lot of in the first hundred days is the like door that just swings back and forth uh, every time a president of a new party comes in, right? Um, and it really remains to be seen uh, where some of these things land. But then there's the thorny issues, right? I mean, I think uh, Tara can tell us a lot about immigration enforcement priorities. And that is one where I think Unlike in, say, the Treasury Department's activities, where Biden would tell you, like, we're working on it, it just takes a little while for the memos to go out, like, they do not want to have to deal with immigration policy exclusively by sending memos and fighting about enforcement priorities, but they are almost certainly going to be forced into that by the uh, gridlock in Congress, the pressure of events, pressure from from activists and and public opinion. And that's like the unfun part of presidenting is when you just have to like deal with running the apparatus of government in a world in which Congress won't just do what you want and people uh, yell at you a lot from all sides. And and what I when I look back at my take on Donald Trump's first hundred days, uh what stood out to me is that what happened is that he rushed out his first version of the travel ban in week one. The courts blocked it. And um, and I wrote this up as kind of a failure and an embarrassment for him. And then I brought in the point to say that when it came to trade policy and when it came to foreign policy, Trump's appointees like uh, Gary Cohn and Rex Tillerson and James Mattis they were much more friendly to the Republican Party establishment. So he had kind of given up his potential to really uh, reorient the party around these areas. And, you know, I I think he still fell short of his potential, perhaps. but, uh, But what the later story of the Trump presidency tells us is that he eventually learned from his mistakes. He got a version of the travel ban that won the Supreme Court's blessing. He uh, replaced Rex Tillerson and James Mattis and Gary Cohn with uh, appointees who would uh, be willing to, well, he had a little hiccup with John Bolton, who wasn't really aligned with him on some stuff. But um, but eventually he got his trade war. Eventually he got us on a course to withdraw from Afghanistan, although it's going to be Biden who finishes that off for him. But basically the point is that, you know, a new president is sometimes bad at bending the executive branch to his whim because he doesn't really know how to do it yet. And his appointees may not know how to do it yet. And they have to learn on the job. And especially, as I'm sure you can tell us, Dara, uh, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to how long Stephen Miller was there, when it comes to just just how much time he had to affect policy, like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that very little of, of, you know, Trump's immigration policy legacy was actually shaped in the first hundred days. Oh, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, with the exception of like, I mean, we saw the blueprint of it in these very detailed executive orders that got signed in the first week, you know, which to those of us who were like doing extremely close readings had the seeds of a lot of things that would later become very consequential policies. But because they were like in the same language that an executive order always is, like the secretary is directed to study the possibility of X, Y, Z weren't, you know, they weren't themselves policy changes. They were, they were a declaration of intent, but they weren't a, they weren't the kind of declaration of intent that, you know, is as legible as a joint address to Congress, right? It was it was something that is much more significant in retrospect than it would have been if those things hadn't panned out. Foreshadowing. And this is, yeah, yeah. 
And like, this is kind of, it's where I am with, with immigration in the Biden administration, which is what I was getting at um, toward the end of the last segment about, you know, the tension between having something to show at the end of the first hundred days and having something to show at the end of the first two years, because it certainly appears from our current understanding of the internal politics of the Biden White House that the Biden administration on the advice of the transition team took the approach of, you know, making a big deal of signing a bunch of executive orders in the first couple of days of his presidency having to do with immigration, most of which were largely symbolic, but they hyped them up massively and like made, you know, made a point of gathering praise from the kind of activists who they would be worried about if they weren't acting quickly enough on setting different enforcement priorities, that kind of thing. They did have a setback on their 100-day deportation moratorium in federal court, but... Which was kind of similar to what happened with the travel ban. Yeah, that's not a terrible... That's. I mean, it's, 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 not a, it's not a terrible argument. It's not a matter of, like, the courts nationwide have decided you can't do this thing. Um, you know, we're still in kind of the... Uh, single veto point thing that Matt and Ian and I were discussing a few weeks ago. But like, but yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a terrible analogy insofar as it's like the first thing that would have come down the pike and actually gotten to happen on the ground. And so what you have instead is... The big bold attention getting thing that that hits hits the rocks. Well, yeah, yeah. But there were also a lot of big, bold attention getting things that were just for attention. Like, I mean... At this point, we are finally we're seeing fruit from the family reunification task force, but that is very much um, an effort to, you know, to carry forward outrage at something that President Trump did in 2018. I, I think um, we almost need to silo immigration from the. No, but I think, but I think that this issues. is actually, but I think that this is actually useful, right? Because, like, if the politics of immigration over the last three months have been that the Biden administration found itself painted into a corner by doing these things that they characterized at the time as big and bold, but were not actually substantive as policy, and like then found themselves in trouble on, say, raising the refugee ceiling because they, or like, you know, there was there was a lot of internal queasiness about that. Um, over the last few weeks because they were worried that they would be seen as doing too much. I think that says something about the importance of kind of like the ways in which having something on the board early, having, you know, your day one bill, having your day one executive orders in a world where the president can't actually do that much on the executive branch in the first hundred days does create a tension between pleasing the people who are looking for substantive action on day one and not alienating the people who are worried about too much being done too fast. See, I think that this is a case of, you know, what Andrew was talking about, like presidential control over the team and the team's competence and capacities, right? And Trump obviously had a lot of difficulties with this. He was, he was, um, Dealing with a very unusual kind of situation in terms of his personal knowledge, um, not just of government, but like of other human beings who could serve in those kind of governing roles, right? Biden is at like the opposite end of the experience, uh, corridor personally, also because it was only four years since the last Democratic administration was in office, and because Biden was part of that administration personally, there are significant elements of the government where they, like, hit the ground running on day one in, like, an incredible way, right? Like, Brian Deese essentially, like, never stopped writing down Democratic Party uh, economic policy agenda, like, from the White House. Back to the White House again, um, Janet Yellen is like incredibly, um, I don't want to say overqualified to be Treasury Secretary, but is one of several Biden officials who seemingly had more prominent jobs in, in the past sort of coming down. And immigration, though, I think Biden faced a version of the Trump problem where he is not in alignment with the main activists on that topic. And so his transition team uh, put forward some things that did not reflect his own considered view of what he really wanted to do. And then you saw that with the like triple reversals on refugee admittances, right? Which is just like 
not everyone involved in this policy is of the same mind as to what it is they want to do. And eventually, you know, what you saw in the campaign, Biden faced kind of a staff revolt on the um, Hyde Amendment issue. And it seemed like something similar was happening on refugees, right? Not that like Biden was um, incapable of running the government, like he overruled his staff to not raise the refugee cap. But so many people on his team and in his coalition were unhappy with that. Not, Not just in the sense of like pushing the administration from the outside, but like the Secretary of State, the head of the Domestic Policy Council, like they did not agree with the direction he was going in. And ultimately, he came back around to, I think, the more liberal view on this question. I don't know that there's a lot of issues that are going to have that specific tension. But like, it's it's tricky, right? Like politics is a, there's like a fair amount of cynicism in politics, but there's also a fair amount of sincere conviction, you know, and like the refugee topic is very uh, moral, seen as very moral for lots of people who really did not want to work in an administration that wasn't going to, at least in some sense, be reversing Trump's refugee policies, even if the political analysis said they shouldn't do it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I think you had the opposite on the early border orders, right, where people were fired up to say that like they were reversing what Trump did there. But there was never an intention on the part of the president-elect to welcome a large influx of asylum seekers from Central America, right? Like that was not a, a desired policy outcome. And so the moment that they started, you know, having more arrivals, there was like a a problem there. Right. Necessary caveat. And like, I know that everyone who's listening to this knows this, but just, I'm, you know, I'm not going to let it go unsaid that like nothing of the actual changes that Biden made in his first weeks in office changed the situation at the border. No, right, like, right, right. To the extent, like there's, and, and I know we've, we've litigated the perception question, so I'll, I'll bracket that. But well, I'm just, I'm, like, I'm just saying his for, own politics. For the sake of a more informed polity, I'm going to have to ride that hobby horse. Yeah, but I mean, you saw them on TV, right? I mean, nobody was saying, so there will be more refugees we settled as a result of Biden raising the cap. And some people will complain about that. And the Biden administration, people are going to go out there and they're saying like, no, like this, like this is what we wanted to do. Right. Whereas like they never they they never sat around and were like, what we want is for more asylum seekers from Central America to come to the United States and to be admitted. Now, they could have reached that conclusion. Right. Like some people do think that. But like that was never a position that they were prepared to actually defend. Um, Whereas I think on most other subjects, there is a like broad cohesion around like what it is they're actually trying to trying to do here, um, which will help them. And Trump like really didn't have that, especially on trade, right? I mean, that's why there's such a um, such a whiplash, right? You would do a 100 days take on Trump. You'd be like, he didn't trade change trade policy at all. But you do a Biden 100 days take, and it looks like Trump changed trade policy a lot because Biden has left it all in place and has not even like, th- there's no indication that he's going to reverse any Trump era trade policy moves. And I think when it comes to the topic of the 100 days and uh, the way the media assesses it, it's often used as kind of just a report card, a peg for report card type article saying the president screwed this up or he's doing this well or not well. And, you know, we've been talking mainly about big legacy defining policy changes, but uh, but there's also an element in the way that this is covered just about like screw ups that happen to hit the news. And, mm-hmm. you know, in in Bill Clinton's first hundred days, he was viewed at the time as having an awful hundred days, even though, you know, uh, his approval rating was was mediocre. The shorthand in the conventional wisdom, at least, was that as soon as he got into office, he screwed up with a lot of his nominations who couldn't get confirmed uh, through various issues, especially attorney general. And he got drawn into a the gays in the military controversy at the time, and uh, which wasn't like what he wanted to define his first hundred days. But he was prepared to take action on that. And the conservative Democrats in Congress, many of whom were still quite anti-gay at the time, uh, were were very opposed to that. And it became 
the kind of defining controversy looming over his first hundred days. And the military, right? I mean, it just it proved more challenging to manage the military brass than they had sort of hoped. Yeah. And 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 of course in the managing the military bucket, like that's where Obama um, had some challenges, not in his first hundred days so much as his first year and when it came to um, calculating Afghanistan policy. And, and this is where Obama faced a sort of Trump problem of um, he he wanted, uh, you know, Jim Jones at uh, NSC for credibility and he wanted Bob Gates at defense for credibility. And then it turned out that these appointees uh where it really aligned with what he might have preferred to do with uh, with regards to withdrawing troops or winding down the war from Afghanistan. And he ended up uh, agreeing to their proposals to surge troops instead. But, you know, as far as the topic of these these uh, 100 day defining controversies, Apart from all the the COVID culture war stuff that that just kind of has continued to simmer, uh, it probably is uh, immigration and the border situation that uh, that stands out as as kind of the story that the Biden administration didn't want to be a major part of their first hundred days, but it ended up happening, uh, especially in conservative media. Um, And you can see it in Biden's approval rating on immigration and the border at this point. It's it's not very good. And uh, there is a perception that he hasn't been doing a good job at that. Uh, That may be a misperception. But when it comes to this whole report card construct of grading the 100 days, uh, it it is a pretty obvious uh, example of something that, that didn't go the way they wanted it to go. That's a good segue to our white paper. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just going to like add briefly, like this also ties into another genre of take of the last week, which is that, you know, Biden is effective because he's so boring, because Republicans don't have anything that they can like point to. And, you know, as Andrew was saying, immigration is the exception there, but it's really, it is striking the extent to which that issue has been latched onto by the same parts of the ecosystem that are otherwise railing against cancel culture because it's something that sounds like a substantive policy issue. Like you can't plausibly blame Joe Biden for, you know, your Dr. Seuss controversy, but it uses the same, it taps into the the same like values-based differences and allows it to sound like you're making a policy argument when in fact you're making an argument about like what is seen as most important and whether the president is reflecting back at you your biggest concerns. All right. I, I want to pivot to uh, to white paper. This is the effect of Fox News Channel on U.S. elections 2000 to 2020 by Elliot Ash, Sergio Galletta, Matteo Pinna, and Christopher Warshaw. Um, answering the call, as they note, of Iglesias 2018, my one and only academic publication, uh, to explore further uh, the impact of Fox News on American politics beyond. There's a couple studies that show really big uh, Fox effects um, on presidential elections early in its existence. So they look down ballot and they look at a later period. They look at uh, channel position effects, right? So people watch Fox more, it seems, when it's just lower down on the cable dial. Um, And they find a, a... you know, a more modest impact than some of these studies of the earlier period, but a far reaching impact that, that at one standard deviation, a decrease in Fox News Channel's channel position boosted Republican vote shares by at least uh, 0.5 percentage points in recent presidential, Senate, House, and gubernatorial elections. Uh, the effect rises between 2004 and 2016, and then it plateaus. Um, and they say, you know, that, that the the mechanism is that you have uh, polarization and nationalization of the political dialogue. And, you know, I mean, it's not a huge effect, but I think that it is clearly seen in the stuff that Dar was just talking about there, that you have a network that will not agree with Joe Biden, that the news is Biden's uh 
legislative proposals and Republican opposition to them, right? Now, you could have a paradigm in which those are covered from a conservative viewpoint, right? In which you do, I mean, the way, um, I don't know, you know, it's like Meet the Press would bring a Republican congressman on to discuss his objections to Biden's economic stimulus bill, right? But still, the president would be defining the news agenda. But on Fox, there's a very different news agenda. And, and you see it, people do um, keyword searches. There's much more coverage of crime. There's much more coverage of immigration. And sometimes Fox can successfully kind of batter things on to the to the mainstream news agenda. And they, uh, I don't want to say exploit, they, they take advantage of the fact that the sensibilities of working journalists in the United States are, I think, well to the left on cultural issues of the sensibilities of the TV news audience, uh, which tends toward old people. And so, like, Fox is super popular by delivering programming that people with conservative cultural attitudes like, and by then infusing the idea that, like, this is what politics is about, right? Politics is about how all these liberal college graduates in big cities don't agree with you about this stuff. Yeah. And to talk a little bit more about what exactly this paper is measuring. So you can't nowadays measure localities or states with Fox News versus without Fox News. It's everywhere that has cable. There was an earlier uh, group of these studies that looked at when exactly Fox News was rolled out in certain localities to see if they could trace uh, a Republican swing there. And they did find an effect. But by 2004, that's basically done. Fox is, is everywhere there's cable. So what they're looking at instead is whether Fox has a higher number channel or a lower number channel. And they talk about a one standard deviation shift in channel position. And I was having trouble wrapping my head around it until I found a line where they actually explain it. They say that is about 29 positions. So it's moving from channel 100 to channel 71. And so they say if if it moves from that, like in some areas, it's channel 71. In other areas, it's channel 100. They see that the areas where it's lower on the channel dial, uh, it gets watched about seven minutes more each week. Uh, so that's the that's the amount of effect we're talking about on average, and um, and they and they say that that correlates to ju- just that um, you know that seven minutes of additional viewership per week on average uh, is a boost of Republican vote share by at least half of a percentage point in recent presidential, Senate, House, and governor elections. So because they can't measure what is the actual effect of Fox compared to the counterfactual world where there is no Fox, they're measuring something that's that's far less significant. They're measuring Fox at Channel 100 versus Fox at Channel 71. They find that even this has a half a percentage point effect. So when it comes to the broader question about how big of an effect is the existence of Fox having? One would think that it would be significantly bigger than that, but just this is what we're capable of measuring. Yeah, and I will say because you know I assume that most listeners probably don't understand how uh, cable channels are assigned, but like they do a robustness check of you know places where demographically speaking, we would predict Fox to be especially popular. The channel position isn't necessarily lower just because of that. Uh, You know, ditto with places you would expect to be more conservative based on their demographics. Like, this is a fairly random assignation. It's not like what we're really measuring is cable executives saying, oh, these people are probably going to want to watch a lot of Fox. We better put Fox pretty low down on the dial. What I do think is worth pointing out is, like, this is not the first study that we've looked at that takes the first 20 years of the 21st century and shows a correlation between a shift in media consumption and a shift in the nationalization of politics. Um, You know, we've looked at at least one study that looks at the expansion of the internet as a mechanism for that because it, you know, drew audience away from locally sensitized news and toward national nationally framed news. And I think it's very difficult to, given the multiple very important changes in media over this time period to disaggregate uh, which one of them is necessarily responsible for the nationalization of politics in particular. Like, I do think that what we're seeing here is 
a very strong correlative argument with a plausible causative mechanism uh, rather than them really uh, demonstrating that Fox viewership is the relevant change. Now, it wouldn't be that hard to necessarily prove that point, especially considering the age of the Fox audience. It like you could probably figure you could probably figure out how likely those people are to be absorbing other media, to be subscribing to newspapers, to have internet access that they use regularly, etc. Um, but we're not quite there yet. And so I, I think that where earlier papers that we've looked at on this have kind of led to a whelp a really complicated and very rapid social transition has taken place. And as a result, Nancy Pelosi is going to be the boogeyman in every single district, no matter how centrist your Democrat in office is. Uh, if you just look at Fox News, it could be a little bit easier to say, oh, if this is if this is really just this one media outlet having a stranglehold on the imagination of a chunk of the American public, it should in theory be possible to reverse, which I'm not sure is the case. You know, Fox they're they're mainly significant you know there are these broader treads obviously that are happening in a lot of media about polarization and 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 sorting but but fox is mainly significant as as a particularly effective and focal conservative outlet here uh and you know when you think about you know messaging and or you might call it propaganda that's extremely important because like there is just one network uh, when it comes to TV, we know that there is uh, a, l- a little more competition now from some of the Trump-friendly uh, news outlets now. By, but in this period, uh, the first two decades of the 21st century, it was kind of – if you were looking for conservative TV news, it was just Fox that you go to. So that gives them, as Matt alluded, uh, an extremely important role in kind of – you might think of it almost as a gateway drug mm-hmm. where if you if you turn on the TV looking for conservative takes and then Fox News is giving you what you want and also more than what you want or what you asked for. And they are defining what conservatism is and shaping that. And, and you know, they don't have the sole power to do this. There's conservative talk radio that's been extremely important in this uh, period as well. We've seen signs that Fox feels they can't get, you know, too far out away from their viewers when they tried to take out Trump in uh, 2016, uh, uh, 2015. Uh, they they quickly backed off of that and were like, actually, we're going to we're going to become a pro-Trump media network because our viewers love this guy. But when it comes to elections, having such a strategic and uh, skillful uh, communicator of what the conservative message is, is a very useful thing to have in a certain area. And if Fox is less accessible, in this case, just because it has a higher number on the dial, then it's less effective as a, as a messenger and a shaper of vote choice. And I think I, something that, you know, I think these studies illustrate it's it's not in the studies, but but they 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 emphasize it that I think sometimes gets denied in the like progressive internet space is that like persuasion happens right that what you see with these channel ordering effects is that there are people who are not super right wing in their politics tune in to Fox find the programming on Fox congenial, which I think like you have to be somewhat conservative to find, you know, like I I would not watch Fox just because I saw it on the dial. I find it very repugnant, right? But there are a lot of people, right? Like cross-pressured people who have conservative views on some topics and Fox programs those topics very heavily. And it then informs you that like the correct behavior as somebody who is worried about cancel culture and Dr. Seuss and thinks illegal immigration is a really big problem, that like you need to go vote for Republicans, that this is the main axis of political conflict, that tax rates on the wealthiest are like not that important, that there is not a lot of emphasis on Clean Water Act enforcement, or there's like a lot of things happen in in politics, right? But like Fox is um, 
appealing to some people who are not in advance dogmatic conservatives. And it, of course, gives them new conservative ideas as anything does. But it also just like it structures the landscape in a certain way, which is different from, you know, old timey politics when you might see conservative Democrat Colin Peterson on your local TV news talking about something he'd done for the Iron Range. And he might get a tough question about like, well, what about that gun control bill? And be like, well, I'm not for that gun control bill. Right. And then you get that 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 localized political frame that I'm a rural Minnesota Democrat kind of thing. And that completely falls out in Fox's programming. I mean, in lots of programming has that nationalizing impact, but that Fox has a specific persuasive impact. Also, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. Like I, I read uh, Manufacturing Consent when I was in uh, high school. Right. Noam Chomsky. And I. I really believed when I was in college, when the internet was coming, right, that like tearing down the media gatekeepers was going to open the doors uh, to the left, right? That we weren't going to have this corporate media controlling everything with these, you know, big defense contract advertisers and things like that. And I just think the experience of the past 15 years has been the opposite of that that they're culturally conservative ideas that not that many journalists subscribe to, but that you can make a lot of money putting on the air, right? That like Fox is not just um, popular, but like it's much more popular than CNN or MSNBC uh, because, you know, that audience was not being that well served. And then when they try to pivot, when they're like, oh, no, actually, Trump is bad, like then they lose market share to Owen and Newsmax. And it's like there's like an endless um, uh, layer cake of like right wing populist sentiment that wants TV shows. Yeah, I mean, if if the manufacturing consent, the consent that was being manufactured was kind of the uh, the mainstream networks, of course, a system only... supportive propaganda function. Yeah, uh, but but I mean, you said that uh, conservative content has has been the real beneficiary of this, but but I think we have seen politics shift to the left as more media outlets have become available as social media has spread also, um, at, at least as far as, you know, the empowerment of Bernie Sanders to do well in the primary, to have a lot of um, Democrats who are liberal and uh, maybe they got into politics because they didn't like the way the Iraq war was going or the mm-hmm. way um, certain things about the Bush administration. And now they're full on supporters of of Black Lives Matter or racial justice reform. And, and we've seen this uh, this sorting on the left as well as the kind of mainstream media gatekeepers have have become less less central. But the issue is that it's it's not just a shift to the left that happens. It's also the unleashing of uh, the reactionary um, trend in American public opinion, as um, as Fox has shown and as these um, as Facebook has shown as well. Yes. Ratchets in both directions. The only solution to heal a wounded universe is to uh, listen to the weeds obsessively, <laughs> share it with your friends, uh, you know, follow us all on social media. Our takes are all really good, sound, system supportive. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, you're doing an excellent, excellent job of manufacturing consent right now. We're trying. We're trying to manufacture it, but it's difficult in the increasingly competitive media landscape, and you need to help us. Um, so thanks. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday.